On the Record with White House correspondent April Ryan. It's On the Record and I'm April Ryan. And 50 years ago, the Poor People's Campaign was an effort by Dr. Martin Luther King that was launched. But with Dr. King's death, it too died. Well, it didn't see the light of day as Dr. King would have hoped. But someone is trying to revitalize that Poor People's Campaign starting on Mother's Day with 40 days of protesting. That person is Reverend William Barber of North Carolina. I talked to him in this latest installment of On the Record with April Ryan. So, Reverend Barber, first of all, thank you for joining me for On the Record with April Ryan. You are a hero, and I tell you, I mean, I'm just so thankful that we caught up with each other uh, at the um, 50th anniversary or the, the commemoration um, or the memorial service, I guess, of um, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a few weeks ago. But what I want to talk to you about is what you're doing, you're picking up where Dr. King left off with the Poor People's Campaign. It's 50 years old this year. That's another anniversary. Talk to me about what you're trying to do to to heighten awareness about poverty in America. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for uh, April, for having us on. It was great to see you as well. One of the things I've said along with my co-chair, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, is that we can't afford in this moment to just have commemorations and remembrances without having reconsecrations and re-engagement on the critical issues around what Dr. King called the triune evils of racism, uh, poverty, and militarism. Uh, We have done some extensive travel around the country, uh, visited over 30 states over the last two years, and we have met people in this country uh, who are deeply impacted with what we now call the five interlocking injustices. Systemic racism, particularly as seen through the lens of voter suppression, uh, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, militarism, and also the false moral narrative of so-called Christian and religious nationalism that basically says if you are anti-gay people, anti-abortion, pro-prayer in school, pro-guns, pro-tax cuts, then somehow that is the, quote, moral position. That We know that doesn't line up theologically. It doesn't line up historically. Um, and what we know is that 50 years after the Dr. King and many others, Cesar Chavez, uh, Rabbi Heschel, uh, the National Welfare Rights, and there were several others, joined with him at a time when he was being uh, radically uh, ostracized. He dared to connect these three issues. He had done it before, but he connected them in a powerful way in 67. And many people had left him. Many civil rights organizations had left him. Many unions had left him. And he found this remnant of people that said, we need to address these issues of racism, poverty, and militarism. We did a study with the Institute for Public Studies uh, and the Urban Institute and also anecdotal information. And this is what we found as to why we have to do this and why we have to honor something Dr. King said more than just I've been to the mountaintop. Before he said that, in that same speech, he said nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back down. 50 years later, we have less voting rights today than we had August 6, 1965. 
because the Voting Rights Act was gutted June 25, 2013. It ended pre-clearance. The Congress, for nearly two thousand, nearly over over a thousand days, has refused to fix it, which which has allowed state legislatures to engage in all kind of voter suppression, particularly in the South, and racist gerrymandering without pre-clearance. That's fifty years. That's fifty-two years after the Voting Rights uh, Act was put in place. That's a tragic reality. Fifty years later, <laughs> there are. 140 million poor people in this country. Not 40 million, because 40 million is the number that are poor based on the poverty line, government standards and poverty line. But if you actually look at the number of people that are working poor and living uh, in poverty, uh, it's over 140 million people, the majority of which are women, children, the disabled, and white. But in terms of the black community, the, uh, over 35, 40% in the black community are living in some form of poverty. That is a moral tragedy. We have 37 million people living in this country without health care today, even with the, the, uh, the portions of Obamacare, that, I mean, Affordable Care Act that are still left. And the Railman School of Public Theology, I mean, Public Health, told us some years ago that nearly a quarter million people die every year from low wealth, not more than heart attacks, strokes, and, and, and cancer. In the country that is the wealthiest country in the world, we are the only country that, uh, of the 25 wealthiest that do not offer some form of universal or single-payer health care. And lastly, we have over 4 million families that in some way have lead in their uh, water or toxins in their water. We can buy unleaded gas, can buy unleaded water. We can buy yeah, unleaded water. We, we're spending over 50 cents of every discretion of dollar to war, the war economy and militarism. And when you add all of this up, yes, we have moved forward in some ways, but the work is far from over. And we can't have just a movement that addresses racism or interpersonal racism and that doesn't deal with poverty. And we can't have a movement that's a neoliberal movement that just says if you just deal with economics without dealing with systemic racism, somehow you can solve things. We had lastly, and I know I said lastly as a preacher, but this is the last one. Twenty six presidential debates in the last presidential election on the Democratic side, Republican side and general election. It may have been more than twenty I know at least twenty six. Not one hour on poverty was discussed and debated, even though we have 140 million people, 43% of this nation living in poverty of some sort. Not one hour on voting rights, even though we have a rolling back of voting rights that we haven't seen since the days of Jim Crow. And we know that 23 states since 2010 have passed voter suppression policies. We cannot have a democracy that has these kinds of issues and they are pushed at the margins of our political discourse and our consciousness. So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is launching on Mother's Day for 40 days. And our one singular goal in the launch, it's a multi-year campaign, but our one singular goal is to shift the narrative by changing the narrators, to allow poor people to impact the people and clergy and others to get in the public square and say we can no longer accept this country being silent or apathetic 
they're going to be this year. Reverend Barber, but what I don't understand, and, 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 and I'm sure other people don't as well, um, you know, during the Obama years, we heard Republicans talk about um, the issue of poverty. And then even now, um, we heard Paul Ryan and some others and McConnell were trying to work out the poverty agenda or work out the issues of poverty, but they couldn't agree on it. So therefore, it didn't make it to it, it wasn't paramount for uh, this moment in time under the Trump years. What happened? Why didn't it become something that that that, you know, just kept the, the steam? Why wasn't the steam there to keep it moving? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. Number one, um, as as Dr. King and others were lifted the Poor People's Campaign, we have to remember another strategy was being lifted called the Southern Strategy by Richard Nixon and um, and um, Kevin Phillips. And the goal of that strategy was to racialize the poverty programs. The goal of that program was to, to create a racial divide in the electorate, particularly in the South to split poor whites and poor blacks and poor brown people from being the natural constituencies that they should be. And the goal was to uh, talk race in, in economic terms and to talk about tax cuts being the salvation of everything and to talk about entitlement in a negative way, the racialized entitlement, to, to create this, this false narrative that somehow um, um, a reason particularly whites were poor is because um, that they were being overtaxed in order to fund entitlement programs that were going mostly to help black and brown people, when the reality the majority of the people using those entitlements were white. Now, Dr. King saw this coming. He said it in 1965 that every time, he said every time in American history there has been the possibility of a black, white, brown coalition, the racist aristocracy used all kinds of um, gimmicks, uh, just like in the 1800s when the redemption movement did it to stop Reconstruction, and then of course the whites of the strategy did in the 60s. They used these gimmicks to split the natural constituencies. But King has said to us that the only real constituency that can shift America would be for black, brown, and white, poor, and working people to come together with union and, and, and First Nation people. Um, so number one, I think that, we, that that we've had this racialization of poverty. And so most folks don't even know that there are nine million more poor white people than there are African-Americans in raw numbers, if you just look at the government standard. And yet the majority of the states that have the highest poverty rates are the states that are the reddest, <laughs> are the states that are electing people who actually, uh, April, use racialized voter suppression to get elected. And then once they get elected, they use the power they have to hurt poor people, most of which are white. We're going to point this out. We actually have a map that shows all the states that engage in voter suppression are also the poorest states, are also the states with the, the poorest women, the poorest children, the poorest, uh, the most attacks on immigrants. And we've got to point this out because there's been such a massive cover-up of this reality. The second thing is that the, uh, the Ryan model is flawed because they start with this idea that poverty is a personal responsibility issue and not something caused by governmental policy. 
So in their mindset, people are poor because they have some personal moral flaw. They're not they're not poor because you keep blocking living wages, <laughs> because you keep blocking health care. So the, 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 if the beginning is wrong, then the end is going to be wrong. Now, this is not due. Uh, there were forces all the way back when Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed the New Deal that, that, that said the same kinds of things. And, and they are the people that pre, uh, the pre, pre precursors to the Ryan and McConnell. Lastly, you know, we just saw this massive tax cut. And this tax cut, some look at it and say uh, that we actually saw more uh, in this tax cut uh, a transfer of wealth from the working poor and poor to the wealthy in a way we hadn't seen since the transfer of wealth from the backs of the slaves to the to the, to, the, to a racist aristocracy that should be troubling to all um, uh, Americans that we will rescue banks but let people fail we treat people like business and corporations like people but when you have a flawed um, uh, racialization of poverty programs when you have a flawed philosophy that starts from the perspective that poor people are their own problem. And then when you have a flawed economic and tax policy plan that actually defunds the government's ability to to empower people, to create empowerment zones, you fight against living wages, you fight against self-care, you fight against fully funding public education, you fight against protecting the environment, you are actually creating the very poverty that you, uh, uh, in a very hypocritical way, say you're concerned about it. And then as a preacher, I'm deeply concerned, and I think this is a piece we've got to lift up in this country, the level at which this false religious narrative, where you have uh, these leaders like Jim Falwell and Franklin Graham and others, who will be loud when it comes to being against gay people, loud when it comes against abortion, loud when it comes to being prayer in school, but they don't say anything about what the Bible, for instance, the job mainly talks about, and that's justice and love. They don't have a thing to say about guaranteeing people living wages and guaranteeing people health care, which are the fundamental precepts uh, in Scripture. So what you end up with is not only people having a flawed understanding of dealing poverty, they have a religious kind of religious consecration of their flawedness. So you get preachers that go in and pray, P-R-A-Y, for a president or for Congress congressional leaders while they are praying, P-R-A-E-Y, on the poor. When in fact, the role of clergy, the role of religion should be to complete the society. And that's why we've got to have uh, this this uh, this movement. Now, I must say, it's not just the Republicans. And I have to say that. You know, when Obama was in office, if I'm not mistaken, the Senate blocked his jobs program. When Democrats had both the House, the, the Senate, and the presidency, they didn't pass single-payer health care. They didn't pass uh, living wages uh, 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 laws. Um, um, so, you know, they didn't pass 
automatic voter registration at 18 since we automatically register people to go to war at 18. Uh, uh, they didn't pass that, you know, uh, uh, we should have early voting and same-day registration, not only in the Congress in D.C., but in, in these states. And Democrats often talk about the middle class and say nothing about the poor. So you have Republicans talking about the poor, but in the wrong way. You have Democrats talking about the middle class, never saying anything about the poor. Then you end up sometimes with Republicans talking about the military. That's their whole focus when they do budget. Democrats talking about middle class, and nobody talks about those poor folk I was with in eastern Kentucky two weeks ago. Nobody talks about that mother in Alabama whose daughter died in her arm because Alabama refused to expand Medicaid that I, that I met. Nobody talks about the Apaches that are suffering out in Arizona because their, their, their um, burial lands are being polluted by multinational countries that are drilling down in the aquifers of present poisoning there. You know, and that's what we've got to change. We've, we have to change, and we've got to put a face on these issues, and we have to demand that both sides of the aisle deal with it. Reverend Barber, before I let you go, I have one last question. With all of this, just on how poverty impacts a lot of portions of our life, be it voting or what have you, if you had a chance or an audience with the president had a chance to talk to him, what would you say to President Trump about this? Well, first of all, I want you to know that we asked for an audience. Uh, we did a moral revival. We had over 10,000 signatures of clergy. We sent him a higher ground moral agenda and said that and we, were going, we offered to meet with him in any house of worship, not Trump Tower, but any house of worship. Number one, we wanted—I want—we wanted to say to him that he needed to repent for the way in which he ran his um, um, campaign, and also acknowledge that that it wasn't just him. He was running the game of the Southern strategy. He he played to an audience that's been cultivated for 50 years ever since Strom Thurmond and Richard Nixon and those set it up. But then we also want to say to him, you know, it is possible, and I would say to him for people to change if I didn't believe that, I would not be a preacher. That, it, that he will not see that the, the, the power that he has in president, should, he should not see it as a tool to be mean and 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 and, uh, and addictive, but he should see it as a place to be merciful and to be uh, just. Uh, I would want to say to him, you put your hand on the Bible. You made a big deal about the Bible. Well, read it. And read what it says about woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights, as I live here. Read what it says when Jesus said, I will say the nation, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was sick, did you care for me? If you're going to make all of this to do about being a person of faith, then, then follow the faith. But next, I would say to him, you, put your, you swore to uphold the Constitution. Well, the Constitution, this president says, that your first concern should be we, not I, not I, not talking about yourself all the time. The second, the next thing the Constitution says, the first, your first goal as a, as a, as a person sworn to uphold the Constitution is to ensure domestic tranquility. Not division, Mr. President, not pitting Muslims against Christians and, 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 and Hispanics against the rest of America. That is not what you swore to uphold. It also says you're supposed 
a form of injustice. Uh, not give, you know, uh, uh, you know, more cuts to the wealthy and hurt the worker. That's a form of injustice. And you're constitutionally out of order. Number three, the, the Constitution says you're supposed to provide for the common defense, not the defense of the lobbyists and the defense of the corporations and the defense of the wealthy, but for the common defense. And lastly, you're supposed to promote the general welfare. And I would say that that, that, that welfare is a, is, a, is a constitutional word. It's not a bad word. And when you promote policies that hurt the majority of Americans, when you promote policies, you, and not just you, but the Congress that's, that's enabling you, because a lot of, I think, President Trump's problem is that congressional leaders that enable him, that for a tax cut, they were willing to accept his racism. For a tax cut, they're willing to accept um, the way in which he maligns people and women for a tax cut. A uh, 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 wrong for unjust tax cut, and they should be challenged as well. But I would say that, Mr. President, you know, you're supposed to promote the general welfare of all people, and your policies are not doing that. And you have an opportunity to change because it's going to be a sad state of affairs for history to write that you had all of this power but you used it in all of the ways you were not supposed to. But finally, I would say to him, Mr. President, if you don't change, if you're not willing to change, then the people are willing to non-violently confront your injustices that you and this Congress are doing. Uh, if our non-violent confrontation will not be partisan, but it will be on our deepest moral and religious principles. And that's why on, on Mother's Day, for 40 days, we're going to launch this campaign that's going to focus on nonviolent, moral, fusion, direct action in 30, at least 30 states and the District of Columbia. We're going to focus on massive voter mobilization, particularly among the 140 million people who are poor and working poor in this country. We're, and we're going to focus on power building from the bottom up. And for six weeks, we're going to launch this campaign. Uh, we're going to say to, to the Congress, not just to the president, that 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 we are not going anywhere. We're going to shift, the, hopefully, the political narrative and the public policy narrative, and we're going to go to work. Not because we're trying to save the Democratic Party, not because we're trying to merely uh, 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 trend, uh, call for the Republican Party to repent of many of its ways, but we recognize that we are in a moment. Uh, a kind of third reconstruction, and we have to fight to save the soul at the heart of this democracy. Reverend William Barber, thank you so much. Um, Mother's Day is not just about mothers, but it's also about helping people. It's about reaching down and lifting up the poor, dealing with voting rights and so many other things. Reverend William Barber is going to be embarking on 40 days uh, for this Poor People's Campaign, marching, demonstrating, etc. Um, join him. And how would they reach you, Reverend Barber? Go to www.reachrepairers.org and if they go to that website, they can click on the Poor People's Campaign or they can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Rev Barber on Twitter. Uh, but Mostly, I would like for them to go to uh, breachrepairs.org, click on the Poor People's Campaign, and they and then when they go there, it will show them how they can get involved in states across this country. Uh, we have 40 
coordinating committees down in 40 states plus the District of Columbia. These committees are led by a clergy, by an impacted person, a clergy person, and an advocate. We just had 47 nonviolent direct act trainings just a few days ago in 36 states because people are coming together, red, yellow, black, white, gay, straight, young, old, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, even people who are not of faith, but they believe in the moral arc of the universe. And they say that with the realities that exist 50 years after the Poor People's Campaign was planned, but then Dr. King was assassinated, we would we would actually be dishonoring the memory of all those who came before us if all we did was remember them, but we didn't re-engage what they called us to. Wow. Again, 50 years after the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Barber is reviving it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And call us while you're doing this, you know, during those 40 days. We'd appreciate it. We will. Thank you so much. With this week's On the Record, I'm AUR.